You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, uh, let's... Uh, we're going to do something different this morning because I think as I was reading through Leviticus, our chapters, the 10 chapters that uh, we had assigned, I started getting a different idea as I kept going all the way to the end of the book. And so we're going to, I think, Lord willing, we'll finish Leviticus tonight. So if you didn't do the reading, you're welcome. No, I shouldn't say it like that. Uh, um, you can read through it. It's the law, and it has a, a wonderful purpose, and its purpose is to um, primarily point us to Jesus. It presents what we call types. That's the biblical word, and that is an imprint. The word type is what our English word type is a Greek word, uh, type, and it means an imprint. And the New Testament concept is that there's, a, there's the reality of what Jesus is and what he's accomplished, but you find an imprint of that in the Old Testament. Here's the real thing, like if you made, you took your child and you got some clay and you put their hand in the clay to have, you know, this is their name and this is the date so you could remember their hand size at that time. Well, that's not their real hand because the real hand's the real hand, but the imprint is there. So the imprint in the Old Testament, that's the word type. So we have lots of types, the sacrificial system, the Passover, the festivals, the holidays that they had, they're all imprints. You know, they're all representations of a New Testament reality. There's tons of illustrations we wouldn't necessarily look at some of the passages and say that's why God's saying it to these people, but certainly you can look and see a principle revealed and, and illustrated or an analogy being made in the book of Leviticus. Um, what, what I wanted to do this morning, and I think, I think thinking of the New Testament and the places where verses are quoted from Leviticus, uh, there's insight uh, for us in our response to the Word of God. And so we're going to be looking this morning at examples of how people dealt with the teaching that's in Leviticus. We'll look at some examples while we're still in the Old Covenant. We'll also look at examples from the New Covenant. And the things that Leviticus says that God spoke in that time period through this particular book of Moses, um, how did people respond to it? And I I think it's very enlightening and, and, and important for us to to sort of look for application that way and apply it to our lives. One of the most famous uh, quotations is uh, Jesus being asked, um, you know, what's the greatest commandment? <clears throat> Remember he said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the greatest commandment. That's from Deuteronomy. But then he said in the second, he always, whenever they asked him what the greatest one, he always told them the greatest and then the second greatest. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that's from Leviticus. Leviticus 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and God says, I'm the Lord. The, the reason why we do the things that we do is because of our, our relationship with him. And primarily, just so you'll understand, if you've never read through the book of Leviticus or you started reading through it, because we're reading through it as a church, and you thought, what is this stuff about it? How does this relate to me? And we don't offer any of these sacrifices, and we don't have a priest, and, and what about these animals that are clean and unclean? Well, it's God's. Uh, made a, a, a relationship with the Jewish people, and he's separating them from the world, and these are the things that God has said that they're going to obey that will define that separation, that they belong to him. They don't just do whatever they want, they belong to God. And there is a transferable application to us. What has God said to us in the new covenant that separates us to him? He's called us to himself, and it's, and it's in a by a different mechanism. It's not the priesthood of the Old Covenant. It's the priesthood of the New Covenant. It's not the sacrifice of the Old Covenant. It's the sacrifice of the New Covenant. So the principle, though, that God wants the people to be His and uniquely His and separated to Him because of who He is and who they are in this new relationship, well, that's true. That was true in the Old Covenant, and it was under these terms, but now we have a New Covenant. That same thing is a reality. And watching people um, deal with you know, what is said here as God's defining this and watching how they, uh, in some cases, really struggle with it, um, they become great illustrations for us of what not to do. So this is going to be one of those 
Bible studies where we're going to primarily look at, don't do this, all right? Like, this is a, this is a, let's look at this and say, okay, whoa, that's heavy. I don't want to do that. Lord, help me not do that. So love your neighbor as yourself is a great command. And we have an example in the New Testament of Jesus trying to help someone deal with this verse, and it's in Luke chapter 10. So we're going to spend our time not so much in Leviticus, but in these other places. So Luke chapter 10, and we'll, we'll see Jesus trying to help a person, and we'll watch this man deal with it. Jesus speaking to him, speaking to him pretty clearly, pretty directly, and uh, we'll see him respond to it. How does he respond? In Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 25, a certain lawyer stood up and was testing Jesus. So this person came with some kind of a little bit of an ulterior motive. He's not super honest in what he's saying. His primary motive in asking this question is not to get an honest answer or to inquire so he can hear something true for himself. His primary motive is, well, I can see if I can catch Jesus. You know, see if I can get him to say something stupid. So he's testing Jesus. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus answered his dishonest question with an honest question. So he didn't just come out and answer. He said, well, what is written in the law? What's your reading of it? And so he answered. He, had, he already had an answer. He was asking him a question that he already had the answer to. He answered, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So that's our Leviticus verse. And Jesus said in verse 28, Here's how Jesus, dealing with Leviticus with the fellow, he quotes the verse, love God, then love your neighbor. Jesus says, you've answered right. Do this and you'll live. So the first way that we would discover of how do we deal with Leviticus? Well, this guy's under the old covenant. The new covenant hasn't been established. He rightly is looking at the right verses that say the right things. And Jesus said, that's right. And then Jesus said, do this and you'll live. That's the way to life. Love people. Love God, love people. Do that, you're going to find life. Don't do that, you're not going to find life. (laughs) Do this and you'll live. But that's Jesus responding to it. But look at verse 29. Here's the man's response, and this is where we can learn something for ourselves. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? He, wanting to justify himself, he heard the truth of the word, He himself articulated it. He had studied the scriptures. He had studied the scriptures and analyzed them to the point that he's willing to come to Jesus and ask him a question he already thinks he knows the answer to. That's a pretty bold guy. He's pretty well aware of what the scripture says. He summarizes it. Jesus, in other contexts, says the same answer. When they ask Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He answers it, the same answer this guy gave. This is a different time. And this guy comes with a question that he knows the answer to, or he's pretty sure he does, and he actually was right, and asked Jesus, well, what do, I, what do I do? Jesus said, do that. You're right. That's it. That's the commandment. You should do that, and then you'll live. And the man's response to that was not, but how can I do that? The man's response wasn't, well, if that's true, then I need a lot of help. <laughs> the man's response wasn't, but I fail at this miserably. You know, my wife is a difficulty. My children are a difficulty. My job is a difficulty. Everywhere I turn, it's a difficulty. Every relationship I'm in, I find myself fighting against myself and my natural inclination. Jesus, you're here. Can you help me? I mean, there's a lot of things he could have said. But we're told that in answer to the statement, Jesus says, do this, the guy said, well, who's my neighbor? Whoa, whoa. And thankfully, we have the inspired um, commentary on his heart. His heart condition was he wanted to justify himself. So here's our first uh, case that we're going to analyze in dealing with Leviticus. A person who wants to justify themselves is going to have a hard time dealing with Leviticus. Right? The purpose of the law is to point out our need, our need for the Sabbath, our need for these rules about Uh, holiness and about treating each other correctly, Uh, rules about how to eat, how to take care of ourselves. I mean, the way, the things that God gave to Israel to make them his own special people, some of them um, that are brought into the New Testament, all 10 commandments except for keeping the Sabbath are repeated in the New Testament. 
As a Christian, you can't say, hey, I'm not under the law, I can steal. No, the, Paul says, don't steal. You stole, steal no more. Instead, become a hard worker and share. You know, you're used to take, now give, right? So Jesus said, if someone smacks you in the face, turn the other cheek, right? The, you've heard it was said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, you know, don't be like that. You're supposed to be gracious. So uh, we have the, the same teaching. In fact, we have it amplified and emphasized to a much further degree under the new covenant. Um, but our problem is, my problem is, when I'm dealing with Leviticus and some wonderful commandment where Jesus tells the guy, that's the right answer, and if you do this, you're going to live. And my response to that too often is, who's my neighbor? <laughs> Wanting to justify myself. That didn't go so well for the guy. This is not how you want to deal with the Word of God. This is actually a thing. Self-justification. It's actually a thing. It's actually one of the biggest problems facing any person who wants to follow Jesus. It's to justify your behavior. When God's speaking the truth and says, this is right, you should be doing this. And then my response is, hold up there, Jesus. (laughs) Well, who actually is my neighbor? You know, is it someone who lives directly next door to me? Uh, is it someone I share a property line with? Well, thank God I back up to the, the train tracks. I don't have to deal with a neighbor back there. In my case, you know, I've limited, I've limited my neighbors. Technically, is it someone I share a property? Like, I've only got two then that I have to deal with, and I've, I actually have great neighbors. So, but what about the people? Is it people on my street? Because I like the people on my street, but I got a couple other streets. I'm not so sure about those characters. Right? Like, how far does it go? Does it go beyond my little uh, development of homes where I live? You're like, well, that's why I moved in the country. I don't have neighbors. I don't have to love anybody. You country dwellers, we know why you're out there. (laughs) Self-justification. I love my neighbors. That's why I'm far from them. (laughs) I mean, I'm not, I'm sorry. That was a joke. So country people, don't write me a letter. Um, And send it by Pony Express. It'll take so long. I'll forgotten about what I said. Sorry. It's just too easy. If you only knew the amount of restraint I'm exercising right now. Self-justification. Even in the word itself, it lets you know that it's a dangerous thing. Because if you say self-justification, who's doing the justifying? And is that a good decision? (laughs) Right? You're a parent. Have you ever seen a five-year-old be self-justifying? It doesn't look so good. You ever seen the three-year-old, the two-year-old, the toddler self-justifying? When there's siblings and there's a problem and it's a seven-year-old and a five-year-old and you see one of them self-justifying, it's, it's, it's like it's not working very well. Why? Well, because of the word self. If God justifies you, well, that's one thing. What if the Twitter mob justifies you? Does that make you justified? Maybe not. What if everybody in the world justified you? Does that make you justified? No, but we're not even talking about that. We're saying, well, who justified you? Well, I did. On what basis? Well, I was thinking it. I mean, I sort of assessed this, and based on my assessment, I don't think I did anything wrong. Oh, that's why we allow the witnesses to be cross-examined. You don't get just sit on the stand and go, let me just tell you. Well, I don't want to answer any questions. I just want to tell you what I want to tell you, and you just have to take it. And that's not how you come to the truth, right? That's not how you find it. You don't find the truth until you, it gets tested. Who does the justifying? <laughs> well, that tells you that self-justification is something to be avoided. Being right in my own eyes doesn't make me right. Uh, being right in my own eyes, especially if I have to wear glasses. If I'm right in my own eyes and you say, well, were you wearing your glasses? Because right now you guys just disappeared and became an impressionistic painting. If I ever want to just imagine Calvary Chapel, I just... Right now, I'll just take a mental image of water lilies. You know, it's like a Monet painting. What if my eyes aren't working right? What if, I'm, what if I'm not impartial? What if I have partiality? What if I'm seeing things from a certain perspective? What if I want what I want? What if I don't want to be inconvenienced? What if I've decided how to please myself, and then now I've made a decision? And Jesus is saying, listen, here's what Leviticus says. You're right. You quoted it. That's the right thing. You should do that. And then the guy's response to it is, well, who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? That's, that's pretty common. It's pretty common to deal with the word of God by self-justification. Don't do it. Don't do it. 
the best way to deal with this, practically for our own sake and applying this to our lives, is ask God the question. And then in the case, the guy doesn't realize exactly what's happening, but he's actually asking God. And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. He gives him a story, a story that illustrates very clearly how to discern who your neighbor is. How do you discern who your neighbor is? What's the answer to the question? Well, who's my neighbor? Well, whoever you see who's in need, that's your neighbor. Well, the guy is on his way up from uh, uh, Jericho up to Jerusalem. He's on this desert windy road through the canyons, and he sees a guy that's wounded, and their priest goes by, and a Levite goes by, and then a Samaritan comes along and sees the fella who's been wounded and robbed and laying there, and he helps him. And at the end of the story, Jesus said, well, who was the guy's neighbor? Didn't say where they lived. Well, they're both from Elk Grove. Well, that guy's from Wilton. That guy's, no, that guy's from South Sac. That guy's from uh, Del Paso, and this person's from South Sac. This person's from here. This person's from there. They're not neighbors. This person is this group of people that's this group of people. He didn't say anything about that. What, what determined whether you could tell if he's the neighbor? Who's the neighbor? The person who helped him. So there is a way to deal with self-justification. That is, take your self-justification to the Lord. <laughs> that's what happens in the story on accident. I don't think the guy's doing this on purpose. He's trying to get out of it. But I think the, the solution is the right solution to say, Lord, I'm struggling with what you said in your word. I'm struggling with this reality It's putting pressure on me, and it's pushing me out of my comfort zone. What in the world am I supposed to do with this? Because I'm sensing your Spirit's leading me in a certain way, and I don't feel up to the task. Take it to the Lord. Let Him bring an analogy to you. Let Him bring power to you. Let Him, as we were praying in the last song, I hope you were praying for your mountain to be removed as you were singing. Right? One of the the, um, manifestations of the Holy Spirit, one of the gifts is the gift of miracles, working of miracles. What a thing to be able to come to the Lord and say, there's a mountain. And maybe I'm part of the mountain. I'm part of the problem. The mountain's there because I made the mountain. Lord, get this thing out of the way. And it's me and I'm included in it. Lord, deliver me. Uh, But don't stick with self-justification. It'll quench the Holy Spirit in your life. Don't justify yourself when you're dealing with the Word of God. Let the Word of God come and then humble yourself before the Word. Uh, Here's another uh, one that I want to turn to, and it's going to be in Judges, and I'm not going to refer to a specific verse. Let's just say Leviticus chapter 11. Uh, The whole chapter has a bunch of statements dealing with dead bodies. Dead bodies are unclean. Now I'm glad that's in the law, because dead bodies are gross. I don't know if you've ever seen a carcass that's half rotten, uh, you know, something, you know, it's just disgusting, and animals have gotten to it, and, you know, it's roadkill or some some other thing happened and the animal's in some state of decay. Worms are growing in it. Flies are all, I mean, it just smells horrible. I don't think I'd need the Bible to tell me it's unclean. Once I got a little older, when I was a little kid, I kind of didn't mind carcasses. Uh, I got spanked one time for bringing home a dead snake, a dead, big, long, dead rattlesnake. My grandpa spanked me and my cousin. Uh, we would often find uh, dead animals up by my grandparents' house in the desert and thought carcasses were awesome. We were unclean all the time. Uh, You're not supposed to touch them. But you remember there's a famous person who was supposed to be living a life of separation and has the law that says don't touch an an animal's carcass. Uh, It's Judges chapter 14. Uh, If you want to turn there. This is a famous story. Judges chapter 14 and This guy's story starts um, in chapter 13. It's the story of Samson. He's now a grown-up, and he's going to struggle. He's got a special calling on his life to be separated to God. His, his parents uh, had his birth announced, and, and he was supposed to be dedicated to God his whole life from his birth. In fact, from the time he was in the womb, his separation would begin in the womb. His mom was to restrain herself and abstain from wine, and this guy, from the time that he's conceived his whole entire life he's separated to god he has a special calling and this was even beyond the average person under the old covenant so in leviticus 11 all these commands about a dead body and what animals are clean and not touching a dead body not touching especially certain animals and their carcasses that that applied to everybody under the old covenant applies to samson but samson especially because samson 
Well, he's supposed to be living this separated life. He's got the Nazarite vow his whole life. And in chapter 14, I have the famous story of where he's cruising along and he's on his way to marry someone he shouldn't be marrying. And a young lion comes upon him in in verse 5. At the end of verse 5, it says, To his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him. So he's attacked by a lion, you know, a sneak attack from this lion. The Spirit of God, verse 6, came mightily upon him. He tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat. And though he had no weapon in his hand, and he didn't tell his father or mother what he had done. So Samson is this crazy character. His heart is just this anomaly of a guy. Like um, Everyone's surprised at his great strength. So don't think of Samson as this guy that's abnormally big and muscular and that he's obvious. Because remember, later, when he finally gets his hair cut from, ba- from a, what's her face, Delilah, uh, what's the secret of your strength? It's not like they're looking at him and he's like, the secret of my strength is I eat bacon and drink milk, you know, or whatever it is. He, they look at him and go, what's the secret of your strength? <laughs> because the guy doesn't, he doesn't look like he's that. But then all of a sudden, in certain moments, he has this supernatural power that just comes from nowhere. So a lion attacks a guy. He just tears it up, just kills the lion barehanded. It's amazing. Doesn't tell anybody what happened. He's cruising along. He goes to check out this girl that he likes who's not uh, an Israelite. So some time passes, verse 8. He's going back to get her. They've gone to sort of make the deal for, the, for a wedding. And he, he's going back in verse 8. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. So I killed that lion. I killed him right around here. It's on the footpath. It's familiar. And he looks, I think I tossed his carcass right over here off the side of the road. And I'm going to go check him, see what's happening to the guts and the grossness and all this. So it's been some time. So you can, you know, know, whatever's happening, the smell and all of that. But he looks, and verse 8 says, A swarm of bees, and there are honey in the carcass of the lion. Lion's been dead long enough to have a hollow now. That a swarm of bees cruising and looking for a spot find this spot. And they make their hive in the carcass of the lion. Does that look like uh, local honey to you that you'd like to grab some and have a teaspoon a day for your allergies? Uh, Get some of this and let's sell this at the farmer's market. Lion's carcass honey. Straight from the carcass. I'm not buying it, personally. You know, like I just, I'm not, I have zero interest. Hey, uh, I mean, I got a discount on this meat uh, for lunch today after church. Where'd you get it? I got it. It's it's lion carcass meat. Uh, Don't know how long the lion was dead. Uh, but I've got some honey to go with it. Uh, no thanks, uh, I'm not interested. So what does he do? He sees it, he sees this, he doesn't stop himself. Verse 9, he took some of it in his hands, he grabbed the honey right out of the carcass of the lion, and he started eating it. Not only did he take some that he would eat for himself, but he takes more. He has some, must have some kind of container with him. When he came to his father and his mother, he gave some to them, and they also ate. And he didn't tell them that he'd taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. When you read through Leviticus, it's pretty clear that this is something you're not supposed to be doing. You're not supposed to grab honey out of the carcass of a dead animal that's decaying. The bacterias. I mean, there's a number of health reasons why this isn't a good idea. Um, but it's that God said it. Your relationship with me is going to be defined by your separation from these things. I'm the Lord. I'm holy. You're supposed to be separated to me. We're together. We're a people. And this is what I'm telling you. And that's the old covenant. There's a new covenant. Jesus, in some way, has called us to himself and called us to a holiness that's actually vastly superior to the holiness of the old covenant. Our righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, or we won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Not just an imputed righteousness, but the law of God written in our hearts and the new covenant. Not a law that's about the foods that we eat, but it's about the garbage that comes out of our mouth that was in our heart. And here's Samson with a special calling on his life, separated to God, even beyond the average person of the old covenant. But he's getting honey from the rotting carcass of a lion. He's flirting with disaster. He's making himself an exception. Yeah, the Bible says this, but I'll just eat what I want. I'll do what I want. And I'm an exception to it. Samson's willing to make compromises that ultimately will affect his undoing. 
Now, I, I've been a Christian long enough. I've seen this happen many, many times to pastors, to ministry leaders. Uh, I've seen it. I've seen it in my own life to some degree. I've seen it in many other people's lives, all different degrees. When we make ourselves an exception to what God says in his word, when the way we deal with the word of God is to say, it doesn't apply to me. I'm going to do whatever I feel like doing. And what's interesting about Samson is, Samson, what possessed you to not only do this to yourself, but you grabbed a bunch of this honey and brought it with you and then say, hey, mom and dad, I, I got some honey. They never thought, did you get that from a rotting dead body? They never thought of it because who would do such a thing? Well, their kid would. Samson would. Samson gave it to his parents. They didn't even know where it came from. They became unclean. Samson was unclean. They were unclean. They didn't even know they were unclean. Now, at some point, they find out that they were. Like, wait, you know, there's a riddle. There's, there's Samson's story is long, but as this stuff all comes out, you think like, wait, that riddle, wait, wait, is that the honey that... Samson, <laughs> like, what... It, what are you doing? I would encourage you, um, as we think, we're going through Leviticus, and you could read through it and go, I don't know how this applies to me, this dietary law. Jesus set us free from the dietary laws. We can eat whatever we want. Everything's clean, right? There's nothing that's going to make you unholy. It may make you unhealthy, but it, may, it won't make you unholy. Jesus cleansed all foods. It's not what goes into the man that defiles the man. Jesus said it's what comes out of the man that defiles the man. So you could be reading through Leviticus and looking at the details of it and say, I don't know how to apply this to my life. Well, if, if we step back from it and go, well, here's a way you can apply it to your life. Don't apply it to your life the way Samson applied it to his life. <laughs> because here's what the scripture says. And when you know what the Bible says and then you make yourself an exception to it, you're being like Samson. And we all know what happened to Samson. We know the end of that road. We know those decisions. And so stop yourself on the road. Have you ever read through Samson's story and yelled at him while you're reading? Or at least in your, imagine in your mind yelled at him like, no, Samson, no, like, let's not go to the next chapter. This is a great spot to repent. It's a great spot to catch yourself and say, what am I doing eating honey out of the carcass of a lion? Because it's going to get worse for Samson. He's going to do much worse. And this pattern is going to be established in his life that the way he deals with the word of God is by not applying it to his life. So, so be careful about that. I, I pray that God will help all of us repent together this morning. One of the great things about being part of a congregation, a repenting congregation, is you've got a lot of friends who are repenting simultaneously. So share your repentance with your friends. Say, oh man, the Lord was speaking to me this morning. This is how I repented. How did you repent? In love, with a smile on your face. Oh man, this week, this, this, I was letting myself off the hook for this. And hey, let's pray together, right? It's, it's part of the beauty of fellowship is to repent together, to be a confessing. Confessing means verbalizing and acknowledging and making the change. Uh, there's another person under the old covenant that I also wanted to talk about. Uh, and he's in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 13. Now, uh, I'm don't even, can't even point to a specific chapter. There's several places in Leviticus where there are instructions for the priests. The whole five chapters at the beginning are all about the sacrifices of the burnt offering, peace offering, wave offering, uh, the sin offering, trespass offering. The offerings that were there, they were specifically for the priests. There's instructions for the priests on how to offer those. So a lot of detail in Leviticus about the priests what they're wearing, how they go about this, where the blood is applied, you know, inside the tabernacle, all of these details that are there. And we have an example of somebody uh, also dealing with Leviticus, and his name is Saul. And in chapter 13, they're in a tight spot because the Philistines are stirred up against him, and this is God giving him a chance to grow in faith. They're, they're terribly outnumbered. He's only been a king for a short time. Verse 1 says it's, he reigns one year and then he reigned two years. So this is right at the beginning of his, of his reign. You could hardly say he's established. There's only 3,000 soldiers that he's chosen for himself. They're divided into two groups. Jonathan is commanding 1,000. He's commanding 2,000. Jonathan's gone out in boldness and attacked the garrisons of the Philistines, verse 3, and uh, creating a, a, a problem with the Philistines. Saul blows the trumpet, takes credit for the victory. And then um, the Philistines, verse 4, oh, they get riled up. Uh, 
It says, Israel became an abomination to the Philistines. And so the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines gathered together to fight Israel. So Jonathan's attack has created this big conflict. And it's, and it's the Lord. The Lord's going to give him the victory, right? Jonathan's got the right heart. Uh, the Philistines are, are uh, in their land. And, and God wants to deliver his people. Uh, but the problem is, everyone's got a perspective. And the perspective is... Um, a false perspective. Verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, anybody with their own eyes could see the terrible circumstance that they're in. Just anybody looking, surveying the scene, we're in trouble. Like this is not good. The writing's on the wall. These Philistines, they want to get us. There's 30,000, what is it? Verse 5, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen. So the men of Israel are seeing correctly. They gathered the data the people are distressed. Their gathering of the data has created anxiety and stress. And so now they're in this place where they're hiding, verse 6. They're hiding in caves and in thickets and in rocks and in holes and in pits. And some of them even left the place. They crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And Saul's in Gilgal, and the people are with him, but they're trembling. So it's a bad situation. People are fleeing the state, uh, it's terrible. The writing's on the wall. Everything's bad. Uh, what are we going to do? People are stressed out. People are hiding. People won't gather together. They're not bold. They're freaking out. Should they be? Well, it depends. You say, yes, of course. The Philistines are going to wipe them out. They're dead, except for the promises of God, except for their God's people. And they're all gathered together. They're called to meet together. And here's what happens. In verse 8, They're in Gilgal, and he's waiting seven days, verse 8 said. There was a time appointed, according to Samuel, we're told. Samuel uh, had been raised in the temple. He was uh, given to the temple worship by his mom on his birth, dedicated to God, like Samson, devoted to God from his mother's womb, serving the Lord. Uh, Samuel had told Saul, yes, it's bad, but you're the king, you're God's man. Wait for me in Gilgal, we'll gather the people, and I will come. So Saul's waiting, and he's waited for seven days. That's what Samuel said, wait for seven days. But, verse 8, Samuel didn't come to Gilgal. So they got to the deadline. What happens when you're waiting on the Lord, and you get to the deadline, and the deadline passes? What happens? What do you do, Saul? Saul's going to show you what Saul does. Can I just suggest to you, don't. Don't do what Saul does. We need to, we need to get new bracelets. What would Jesus do? And then, a, don't do what Saul does. Right, like a different, a different uh, bracelet. Don't, don't do what Saul does. He waited, but then the people began to scatter. There's a certain reality. And look what happens. Verse 9. Saul says, bring me a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. That's Leviticus. Did you guys read that? That was last week's chapters, right? Burnt offerings, we know all about them. Chapter 1. Peace offerings. You can read the whole chapter. Learn all about it. Who offers peace offerings? Who offers burnt offerings? Oh, the priests. Leviticus telling you exactly what to do, Saul. Saul, you're being tempted, man. You're being tempted to do this because of what you see is happening. You're listening to the headlines. You're watching the news. You've gathered the data. You've made an assessment. You're not listening to the Word of God. You've made an assessment based on what you can see, and it's created all this uneasiness, and now you're about to act, but you haven't considered what God said. And if you considered what God said, you would never do what you're about to do. Right? Dealing with Leviticus, this is a transferable uh, lesson to us. He says, when everybody's leaving him, bring me the burnt offering. And verse 9 says, he offered the burnt offering. Well, that's not good. Now, why did he do it? Can you understand why he did it? Of course. Totally understand it. What politician do we have today that's elected into office that wouldn't do this? Do we have any statesmen? Do we have any men of principle? Do we have any men or women that are in positions that are going to do what's right, no matter what the data shows, or in the sense of, what are the poll? The poll says this. This is what this is. Like, well, no, this is right. Who's going to do what's right, no matter what the cost? He offers the burnt offering. As soon, verse 10, as he had finished presenting the burnt offering, Samuel came. Oh, man. Oops, <laughs> you waited five minutes too short. 
finish it. Like, all right, well, at least we offered this to the Lord. And then all of a sudden, here comes Samuel walking up the path. You're like, oh boy, what happened? He went out to meet him. Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And verse 11, Samuel says, what have you done? What did you do? Oh my goodness. What have you done? Let's look at Saul's answer. This is how you deal with Leviticus if you're Saul. Saul said in verse 11, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you didn't come within the days appointed and the Philistines were gathered together at Michmash, I said the Philistines will now come down on me in Gilgal and I've not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and I offered a burnt offering. I'm that genuine in my faith that there's no way I could face an enemy without offering a sacrifice. I don't think that's the real reason, bro. I don't think that's honest. Look at what Samuel's answer, verse 13. You've done foolishly. You've done foolishly. You've not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. Saul acted foolishly. How did he act foolishly? He looked at his circumstances, and he directly violated what the Bible gave him permission to do or what the Bible's calling was on his life. He had a tremendous calling, like Samson. A high calling, called to be an influential person, but completely quenching the work of God in his life by being a person unwilling to deal with the word of God by taking it seriously. In his case, uh, you know, linking a direct disobedience and trying to make it sound spiritual. (laughs) I didn't have a chance to offer supplication. I'm pretty sure that's not why you were doing what you were doing. I've heard people do the same. Making direct disobedience and trying to make it sound spiritual in its nature. I was actually seeking the Lord as I was directly disobeying Him. I'm pretty sure that's not possible. (laughs) If God told you to do this, how in the world could you be doing the exact opposite and say, well, I was doing it for the Lord. I don't think you were. That's the thing with self-justification. Saul's justifying himself. What did you do? I got a reason for what I did. It's a terrible reason. You're fooling yourself. This idea of self-justification. And we think about Leviticus and dealing with Leviticus in this context. Uh, Leviticus, those scriptures that he had that were defining his relationship with God, were going to protect him from something like this. This is a temptation. It's a big temptation. Do you face temptations? You better believe it. How do you deal with them? How are you going to get victory over temptation? How are you and I going to have a victory over our flesh and our inclination towards sin and the temptations that come to us from the world and from the devil, and they appeal to our flesh. The scriptures are going to keep us if we're willing to listen to them. If we're willing to say, you know what? I don't know how this is going to turn out. It looks like it's going to turn out bad. But I can't do this because God said not to. And I can't do this because God forbade that. And so, Lord, what do you want me to do in this crazy situation that I'm in? And in his case, it would be It would be what? It would be keep waiting. Because in the next chapter, how many people does he need to put to flight this army? What happens in chapter 14? How many people put to flight the army that's that's gathered against him? Jonathan and his armor bearer. Everybody else could leave. He only needed two guys. So when he's looking at what's happening and saying, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening, hold, hold up, hold up. How many people do you need, Saul? If everybody left and it was you and Jonathan... And his armor bearer, that's enough. You can stay here and blow the trumpet and take credit. Jonathan's going to go take a victory. Like there's a man of faith here. Somebody's going to be able to be used by the Lord in this moment. Looking at the realities of the circumstance, Saul says it like this. I was compelled. Did you notice that word in verse 12? I felt compelled. Or I think old King James, I forced myself. Oh, learn to listen to the word of God. I had to do it. I felt compelled. There was nothing else I could do. I think there was something else you could do. You were compelled by the flesh. Oh, uh, we're not ignorant of the realities, but neither are we guided by them. The realities that we face, they don't determine for us what is most important. Please, I beg you and I encourage you, I implore you. Let's, uh, let's pray for one another that in the moment that we're living in with the bombarding and the access to data, the access to information, and the access to experts in persuasion through our devices who are telling us what to think. Now you say, yeah, I don't listen to those people on that side. I only listen to the people on this side. The people on this side don't have your best interest in mind. They want to make money off of you. Period. 
across the board. Don't let them decide for you what's most important. I had a strange experience on a date with my wife uh, night before last. We had a wonderful time together. That wasn't the strange part. <laughs> Spending time with Gina is wonderful. But we were, we were seated at a restaurant where they have, there's a couple of tables where you end up way too close to people that, you're not, that you don't know. Right? So there's two little two-seaters. And you can, like I could put my hand on their table. Like I'm that, that could barely fit between the two tables. So we're kind of having dinner with this younger couple. They have a baby with them. When they sit down, the baby's on a device. The baby, the guy's like three years old, little bitty dude. He's got his device the whole time, the whole dinner. His device is in front of him, baby sitting in. Never takes his eyes off of it the whole dinner. The guy's sitting on my side, so I can't really see him. Gina told me later, he had his device out almost the whole time and never took his eyes off of it. I could see the lady and she really couldn't see her and she didn't have her device out and she was trying to have a conversation with her husband. And it was just such a strange, awkward thing. And I was listening to the conversation and the entire conversation, everything that the guy was talking about was from the headlines. Every single thing. Well, what do you think about Putin and these tanks that they're bringing in? I thought, you're out with your little kid who's three years old and you put him on the thing so you could talk about tanks that Putin has? Where did he learn about tanks that Putin might be getting or uh, the tanks that the Ukrainians are getting? Where did he learn about that? Did he get that from the Bible? Does the Bible tell you what to focus on if you go on a date with your wife? Fellas, you better believe it does. It says dwell with your wife with understanding as with a much more sensitive and amazing person than yourself. Giving honor to your wife. Prefer her. So when I go out with my wife, I'm going to talk about my feelings. I'm going to talk about my day with great detail and how I emotionally was feeling about the events of my day. It's a very unnatural act. It requires, it requires the power of the Holy Spirit because there's no difference between me and the guy who's talking to his wife about the slap. Bro, you're on a date with your wife. Why are you talking about that? What are you talking about that? What are you talking about? There was nothing that came out of that dude's mouth that didn't come to him from the internet. Do not come to church and act like that guy. If you find yourself falling into that trap, if you find yourself falling into that trap, catch yourself. Apologize to the people you're talking to. Say, excuse me, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for hijacking the conversation. You know what? I was reading yesterday morning in my Bible about being humble. Jesus said, unless you come like a little child and humble yourself. And man, I was meditating on that all day and I was thinking, Lord, I need a lot of help. (laughs) I just want to be humble. I would much rather have God tell me what I should be thinking about than to go to a device that has been cleverly designed to manipulate me no matter what my position is on whatever the issue is. And I'm telling you, the experts who frame these headlines, they get real-time data, and then they tweak the headline. They know how many of the clicks they're getting real-time. And they change the wording. They change the color. They change the picture. These, this is a very strategic, amazing manipulation of people. And it's not one political party or the other or one side of whatever issue. You pick any issue, and there are firms that are devoted to capitalizing on getting people to not put the thing down and getting you to talk about it. And they're very good at it. Don't be like Saul. (laughs) Saul should have been thinking of something else. Jonathan in the next chapter is thinking something else. He wakes up in the morning and he's not talking about the headlines. He wakes up in the morning and tells his friend and says, you know what? God could deliver by many or by few. Where do you get that? He didn't get that by looking at the Philistine army. He got that because the Bible says that. Gideon proves it. God promised it in the law. One of you can chase a thousand. And Jonathan wakes up having thought about what God was wanting him to think about. Looking at the realities of the circumstances, this guy said, I felt compelled to act this way. I wonder how many Christians are missing out. They'd be like Saul in this moment or this window that we're living in. Like, this is how I had to act because, well, you had to act that way. You're like Saul. Stop looking at this. Stop thinking about it like this. Look at this and think about it differently. 
Look at this and think about what God's saying and what God has said. Don't let anyone other than the Spirit of God through the Word of God tell you what's most important or what you should be talking about. Don't let anyone other than the Spirit of God or the Word of God. That includes your favorite ministry. That includes me. That includes anybody who's given you information. Be careful. Be very, very careful. Don't let anyone other than the Spirit of God through the Word of God tell you what's most important and what you should be focused on. And I promise you, if you say, Lord, I would really like to be like a tree planted by the river of water so that in the midst of a drought, my leaf wouldn't wither and I'd always be bearing fruit. Guess what? There's a song about that. It says, you'll be happy if you don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful. But if your delight is in the law of the Lord and in that law you meditate day and night, then you'll be like a tree planted by the river of water. There's more. We're not going to get to all of it. Here's another one. Jesus and Leviticus. This is awesome. In Mark chapter 7, we have the Pharisees coming to Jesus. Mark chapter 7, these were the men who, they believed in Leviticus, they memorized it, they knew what it said. And we'll see another challenging uh, way to deal with Leviticus. We're going to look at two things of Jesus. First, he's trying to help these guys. Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes, they asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered them. He said, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? It's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So what they were doing wasn't something that had never been done before. Isaiah wrote about it 700 years earlier. So we're not talking about something new. It's an old school problem. He said, verse 8, you laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the traditions of men. You wash pitchers and cups, all these other things that you do. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you could keep your tradition. Moses said, honor your father and mother. That's, that's the Ten Commandments. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. That's in Leviticus. Moses said, mom and dad have to be taken care of. You have to You have to bless them. You have to honor them. But you say, verse 11, this was their tradition. You say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is gift to God. Now, let me explain to you what that means. This would be your parents are in need. And then they come to you and they say, son, we're in need. And then I say, I'm sorry. Everything that I own, I've dedicated it to the Lord. I'm using it. But it's all dedicated to the Lord. My house, it's the Lord's. All my stuff, it's the Lord. My bank account, I gave all the money to the Lord. Can't give it to you. It's all His. It's, I'm using it. But it's like a, they created a technicality so that you don't have to give away something that's korban. I dedicated it to God. But, but son, don't you have any? No, I dedicated it all. We'll be using it. <laughs> Not you. I can't give it to you. It belongs to God. So it's, a, it's like a loophole they created. He says, you say if someone does this, they dedicate it to God, then verse 12, he says, then you're no longer uh, letting him do anything for his father or mother. You've made the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you've handed down, and many other things you do. Is it possible to make the word of God of no effect? What's this trick question? Is it possible to make the word of, Jesus just said you've made the word of God of no effect. So it's, it's, it's got a yes and a no answer. Is it possible to make the word of God of no effect? No. It's the word of God. You can't undo it, right? God's word never comes back void. You can't undo it. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying you're in danger. You're in danger of quenching the Holy Spirit. You're in danger of letting the word of God, who's coming to you to have an effect upon you, and you're in danger of not letting it have its effect because of tradition, excusing myself from it through some construction of my own. So no one can make the word of God of no effect. However, We could construct something that nullifies it or or hinders it in our lives. How do we do this? Well, I want to define tradition because I'm not a traditionalist. So I could easily be like Saul or Samson and go, this one doesn't apply to me at all. I am so untraditional. I I didn't grow up in church. Uh, Like Danny said, oh, we're coming to Easter. And all I could think of was, peeps don't define Easter for me. You know? Early in the morning on the first day of the week, just because peeps are for sale doesn't mean it's Easter. You know, like I, I have like no sense of 
tradition. So I was thinking, like, how do I make this convicting for me? You don't have to be religious to have tradition. Let me define tradition a different way. Tradition's what you normally do. Tradition is normal. It's what you normally do. One doesn't need to be religious if I have that definition. Jesus said, you you don't do what God says because what you normally do. You've created a construct that this is what you want to do. So on church during football, Sundays during football season, I normally, personal foul, unnecessary tradition, right? I'm going to nullify the word of God for the sake of my tradition. What's my tradition? I don't normally do that. You hear people say, I don't normally do that. This isn't what I normally do. That's a traditionalist statement. Well we, don't, well, we don't do that. Now, sometimes it could be good. Like, we don't sell pot anymore as a family. Or, you know, we, we're not doing this anymore. We, we normally used to do this. We don't normally, like we, are, we used to, but we're not doing that. There could be ways that tradition is good. But think about it. When Jesus is talking to these guys saying, God's word says this, and then you let yourself off the hook because you got a construct of your own. I usually say something like this. Well, when I get home, I... Oh, don't say that, Rich. Well, when I get to work, I... On my weekends, I like... Well, on that day, that's when I... Well, early in the morning on that, that's when I... And so you nullify it. God says, do this, and I've got my traditions of why it doesn't happen. What do I do normally? How does something become normal, by the way? How does something become normal for you? Things, have you found out things that are normal for you aren't normal for other people? How did it become normal for you? How does normalization happen? What makes something become normal? When you do it habitually, so that it becomes a pattern, or it becomes the standard. This is what I normally do. What determines what you do habitually? How do you decide that? Do you let the Word of God determine for you what you do habitually? Or is it your own heart and your own desires. If we're going to deal with Leviticus, we don't want to be like these characters, you know, that Jesus is dealing with. It reminds me of the verse where we're told in Hebrews 12, verse 1, let's lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us and run with endurance the race set before us. Let's lay aside every weight. A weight would be the traditions. They're not necessarily sins. Sins are sins, right? We have sins. We know what those are. Lay those aside. Samson needs to lay aside his sins. Saul's sinning. It's not a tradition. He's, he's sinning and he's justifying it. These guys have created something and saying, well, we're off the hook because we created this other thing. Lay it aside. Anything that hinders, that's become normal. Do you have something in your life that's normal and it's a weight and it's keeping you from doing what God said? I'm not necessarily going to use this as a recruitment tool for Sunday night, but I just wonder, you know. Well, normally I don't do that on Sunday nights. Okay, so what does that mean? <laughs> what did God say to you? Well, it's with Sunday night ministry. Well, I, normally I don't do that. Well, I don't normally, okay. Isn't being a Christian stopping doing what you used to do normally and finding what the new normal is? Like, what, do, what am I going to do now habitually? Now, don't go sign up for Sunday night. I don't need, we don't need you in there if you're guilty. <laughs> Kids don't like guilty teachers. <laughs> they like happy teachers. They're like, well, I'm in here, and now you got me. Something that keeps you from doing God's will. So great, Hebrews 12 gives the answer. Fix your eyes on Jesus. That's the way out of it. That's the new normal. These guys had fooled themselves into believing that they were pleasing God when they were, in fact, nullifying his word. One last one about Leviticus, because Leviticus has the chapters on cleansing the leper. There's way more. There's a lot more we could talk about. This is not even close to scratching the surface of dealing with Leviticus. There's a lot of uh, examples of People dealing with Leviticus in the Bible. But remember the, the leper that was cleansed. And what did Jesus tell him? The guy said, if you're willing, you can make me clean. For your notes, it's Mark 1, 43 to 44. After Jesus healed him, Jesus strictly warned him, sent him away at once, said, see that you say nothing to anyone. Go your way and show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing the things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Moses commanded the offerings about the leper in the book of Leviticus. How did Jesus deal with Leviticus? He cleansed the leper and sent him off with the chapters. <laughs> go, go ask the priest to find that chapter and blow the dust off of it and go, hey, we've never done this. Hey, there's a Jewish guy got healed from leprosy, man. We never offered this one before. Here we go. 
And related to the leper, this is my favorite part, and this is what we'll end with. Jesus being born under the law, fulfilling the law, and blowing everybody's minds. It's Mark 14, verse 3. Mark 14, verse 3, we're at the last week of Jesus' life. This is the story where Mary anoints him with the, the very costly oil, anoints him for his burial. We're at the end. He's been ministering for over three years. He's got all these followers. Mark 14, verse 3, and this is related to the leper, the cleansing of the leper. Remember, the lepers are unclean. They're supposed to shout out unclean. They're supposed to be separated from the people. Mark 14, verse 3, Jesus being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Well, what about Leviticus? This is Simon the leper's house. What are they doing in that dude's house? That guy's unclean. You can't be in his house. He's got leprosy. (laughs) He used to have leprosy. He's Simon the ex-leper. Here's the, here's the way Jesus deals with Leviticus. When you're reading through, we'll get into numbers, we have more law, we get into Deuteronomy, which is all law. We still have a lot more of the law to wade through as we go through the Bible. How does Jesus ultimately deal with all this uncleanness? By cleaning people. So there's a party at Simon the leper's house. Do you think Simon the leper ever thought he was ever going to have a part, that he would ever have a house <laughs> that's in a neighborhood that's by other people? Because he's a leper. He's supposed to be separate. He's going to be in a leper colony. He's going to be with other lepers. He doesn't have a house that you can go to. He does now. Because at some point in the ministry of Jesus, Simon ain't a leper anymore. The guy that's not going to have a party at his house is having a party at his house. How does Jesus deal with Leviticus? He fulfills it. He fulfills it. The man who's unclean and outside is now uh, presiding over a wonderful party in Jesus' honor when Mary comes and anoints him with the oil, a party at his house. The Messiah's response to Leviticus is to clean the unclean. This is an application that we're making out of Leviticus. We have these laws. We see people making excuses, hardening their heart, justifying themselves, Their traditions are nullifying the word of God. These are all like the negatives. But then let's look at Jesus. How does he deal with it? He comes in and he he fulfills it. (laughs) Come here, leper. Let me cleanse you. You know, you get back to work. You got a real gift to make some money. In a very short time after being cleansed, dude's back in a house and has all this stuff. He's having a party at his house for Jesus. Cleaning the unclean, saving the unsaved, rescuing the lost, healing the broken, forgiving sinners making the dead come alive. The dead carcass, you see Samson touching the dead body and you see Jesus telling, Lazarus, come out. Take his grave clothes off him. Hold on, that's going to make him unclean. Well, not technically. (laughs) Those aren't grave clothes anymore. That's just a wrapped up dude that was dead. Uh, Those aren't grave clothes. He's alive. He's not dead. Touching him will not make you unclean. He's alive. Jesus touching the dead boy, the widow of Nain coming out. Jesus raising him from the dead. The little girl, give her something to eat. They're not unclean. She's not dead. The Messiah's response to Leviticus. It's very powerful. The work of Jesus. Father, we pray that you'll help us. We come to the word. We realize that there's a great challenge for us uh, that's repeated throughout human history in these different ages and even under both covenants, the old and the new covenant. We see people avoiding the scripture and hiding from it, uh, hindering it, quenching it. And, and we pray, Lord, that you'll help us. Help us to be a people. And even if we look at the law, we understand it, we understand its purpose, we, we see the glorious new covenant. But, but Lord, it's very, um, it's very important for us to, to open our hearts. And I pray if there's anybody here who's like Samson, And they're just doing stuff they're not supposed to do. And thinking it's okay and it's not a problem. I pray in the name of Jesus you'll set them free. I pray especially if there's any any men that are in a spot where they're, they're touching things and doing things that they know this is not right. That that today would be a day of repentance and a day of change, a day of a confession and change in their lives. Lord, if there's people who say, well, I don't normally do this. This isn't, you know, I have a tradition that, that keeps me from having to do what God says. Lord, I pray that you wouldn't let us have anything in our lives that keep us from doing what you say. 
Help us, Lord, and, and thank you ultimately for this reality that you, Jesus, you fulfill the law, the whole law, and that the, the clean become clean, and that a man who's called Simon the leper has a party at his house, filled with people, filled with joy, glorifying Jesus, surrounded by friends. Lord, that you do that. You do that in our lives, God. Set us free from our uncleanness. Make us alive, Lord. Give us life. Work in our hearts. Help us to be a people that receives your word and walks in it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Rich Chafin. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Rich's teaching ministry by visiting cclc.org.